From the studios of KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, after decades of running for the nation's highest office, former Senator and former Vice President Joe Biden finally accepted the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Speaking on Thursday, the fourth and final day of the 2020 Democratic National Convention, Biden gave his address from his home state of Delaware and promised to offer a stark contrast from President Donald Trump. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. Too much anger, too much fear, too much division. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. I'll work hard for those who didn't support me, as hard for them as I did for those who did vote for me. That's the job of a president, to represent all of us, not just our base or our party. This is not a partisan moment. This must be an American moment. It's a moment that calls for hope and light and love, hope for our future, light to see our way forward, and love for one another. This campaign isn't just about winning votes. It's about winning the heart and, yes, the soul of America, winning it for the generous among us, not the selfish, winning it for workers who keep this country going, not just the privileged few at the top, winning it for those communities who have known the injustice of a knee on the neck. 
for all the young people who have known only America being rising inequity and shrinking opportunity. That's former Vice President Joe Biden making his case to voters about why he would be a better leader than the incumbent. While Biden's speech was lauded by most Democrats, even conservatives were impressed. Longtime Republican pollster Frank Luntz gave Biden high marks for his speech and said, quote, I do believe that Joe Biden is ahead and I do believe the challenges for Donald Trump are significant. Fox News host Chris Wallace said the address was, quote, enormously effective. Also speaking on the fourth night of the convention were Andrew Yang and Cory Booker, both of whom ran unsuccessful bids for the nomination. If you voted for Trump or didn't vote at all back in 2016, I get it. Many of us have gotten tired of our leaders seeming far removed from our everyday lives, and we despair that our government will ever rise to the challenges of our time. But we must give this country, our country, a chance to recover. And recovery is only possible with a change of leadership and new ideas. Last week, Donald Trump said, and I quote, our economy is doing good. While 40 million Americans are at risk of losing their homes, 30 million aren't getting enough to eat, and 5.4 million people have lost their health care because of this crisis. He has failed us. That's Senator Cory Booker speaking on the fourth day of the Democratic National Convention. Before him was entrepreneur Andrew Yang, who, like Booker, had run for president. Another highlight of the final night of the DNC was Senator Tammy Duckworth, an Iraq war veteran who slammed Trump as the nation's coward-in-chief. That's the kind of leader our service members deserve, one who understands the risks they face and who would actually protect them by doing his job as commander-in-chief. Instead, they have a coward-in-chief who won't stand up to Vladimir Putin, read his daily intelligence briefings, or even publicly admonish adversaries for reportedly putting bounties on our troops' heads. That's Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois speaking on the final night of the 2020 DNC, where Joe Biden accepted his party's nomination for president. The New York Times analyzed the speaking times for those who got prime spots during the four-day virtual event, and concluded that, quote, all four nights were dominated by familiar political figures, many of whom have known and worked for years with Joseph R. Biden Jr., the party's nominee, and share his center-left ideology. And progressive figures like Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, quote, were vastly outnumbered by more establishment-friendly figures. Meanwhile, President Trump, seeking to eclipse Biden, spoke at an event in Old Forge, Pennsylvania on Thursday, bringing together a few thousand of his supporters and flouting social distancing guidelines. CNN described his speech as, quote, a blizzard of false claims that included assertions that President Obama spied on the Trump campaign, that Trump had opposed the Iraq war, that the COVID-19 pandemic was slowing down, and that he had passed the Veterans' Choice Bill. None of those claims were true. Speaking on Fox News on the same evening, Trump also announced that he would be protecting the election's integrity by sending law enforcement to polls. He said, we're going to have sheriffs and we're going to have law enforcement and we're going to have hopefully U.S. attorneys and we're going to have everybody and attorney generals. Trump does not have the authority to deploy police to polls. In other news, the Postmaster General Louis DeJoy faced a Senate hearing on Friday, during which lawmakers aggressively questioned him about some of the drastic policy changes he oversaw, which are leading to slower mail delivery times and which could delay voting by mail in November. 
Mr. DeJoy, who is a staunch Trump loyalist, GOP donor, and who has business conflicts of interest with the U.S. Postal Service, assured senators that, quote, the Postal Service is fully capable of delivering the nation's election mail securely and on time. However, he did not outline a plan to ensure that. He also said he had, quote, no idea about the reports of high-volume mail sorting machines being uninstalled or of pickup mailboxes being removed. Although DeJoy had claimed he was putting on hold his announced changes to the Postal Service until after the election, he did not say he would reverse those changes that had already been made. CNN obtained an internal email to postal workers instructing them not to reconnect those machines that had already been uninstalled. The LA Times reported that delivery services have been slowed down so much that at a massive mail sorting facility in South Los Angeles, quote, workers fell so far behind processing packages that by early August, gnats and rodents were swarming around containers of rotted fruit and meat and baby chicks were dead inside their boxes. Trump loyalist and former White House chief strategist Stephen Bannon has pleaded not guilty to charges of fraud in a massive scheme to privately raise money for Trump's border wall pet project. Bannon was arrested along with three others on Thursday. According to AP, quote, much of the money never made it to the wall. Instead, it was used to line the pockets of group members, including Bannon, who served in Trump's White House and worked for his campaign. A judge has released Bannon from custody on a $5 million bail. At least five people are dead in California from the fires that continue to rage across the state, and particularly in the northern and central regions. Nearly 700,000 acres have burned so far. The set of fires known as the LNU Lightning Complex fire has destroyed more than 200,000 acres in California's wine country in particular, and as of Friday morning, they were 0% contained. Thousands of residents are under evacuation orders. According to the LA Times, quote, the fire has caused extensive damage at Big Basin Redwoods State Park and forced the evacuation of staff, campers, and other visitors. The state park, California's oldest, sustained damage to its headquarters, campgrounds, and historic core. Officials with the California Department of Parks and Recreation said the agency did not yet know the number of acres that had burned within the park and were assessing the damage. And that does it for our news headlines. We'll be back with the rest of the show after this break. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. This year saw a massive burst of popular anger at the racist police violence facing black Americans. In the wake of George Floyd's killing at the hands of Minneapolis police, videotaped for the world to see, 
hundreds of thousands of Americans marched and protested and are still doing so in some cities. The slogan Black Lives Matter became mainstream. Just months ahead of the most important election of our lifetimes, the Movement for Black Lives is launching a Black National Convention a week after the Democratic National Convention wrapped up. Joining me to tell us all about it is Anita Wills. She's a member of the Electoral Justice Project Roundtable with the Movement for Black Lives. Welcome, Anita. Thank you. Great to be here. So um, is this something that the Movement for Black Lives has done in previous elections, or is this a first? We have done this previously. Uh, I've been in, with the Electoral Justice Project for several years now. I was uh, I graduated from one of the first uh, cohorts of the Electoral Justice Project, and I was in 2018. Um, so we've been at it for quite a while. So this year, of course, I imagine it's taking on so much more significance, not just because we have a white supremacist president who has fueled the criminalization of people of color, but also because the violence facing black people at the hands of police came to a head and we saw this huge uh, uprising nationally around George Floyd's killing. I imagine that you might have a bigger attendance this year and just having uh, an, a, a sense that the state are a lot higher yes and it and George George Floyd's killing is is a bellwether but there are many many killings before George Floyd and none of the families were receiving justice or being heard nothing was done to change the police department and how they are connecting to our community, how they come into our community, what they're doing in our community. They are not held uh, accountable for the deaths. And it was just like, we already had the COVID. And then here, here is someone who is blatantly sitting on somebody's neck, looking into the cameras, grinning. And it just tore out the hearts of America, not just black America, but every caring Americans saw that and was disgusted by it. What is the uh, agenda of the Black National Convention? It's a one-day event, I understand, mm -hmm. happening August 28th. The website is blacknovember.org. Right. Um, what w do people who register for it, what should people expect? We're going to be talking about what is in the best interest of us as a people moving forward. We're gonna be talking about the Breathe Act. We're gonna be talking about the uh, culture, the policing culture. We're gonna be talking about uh, in incarceration, the over-incarceration of our people and healthcare. You know, um, everything that happens in America is weaponized against people uh, of color, of black people and brown people. And so we're bringing up these topics because we feel like now is the time to bring them up, to talk about them, and to demand changes. Tell me about the historical context for this convention. Um, in 1972, we saw yes. the National Black Political Convention in Gary, Indiana. Do you see mm -hmm. links between that convention and what's going to happen on Friday, August 28th? I do. For one thing, we were up against systematic racism. And it seemed like 
the more that we fight against the racism, the more there is this like pushback against them. So here we are in 1972, demanding changes and getting promises and nothing has happened. So we're in the same position or we're in a worse position. You know, we're in a worse position than we were when in, in 54. And you know, I mean, it's just like a 20 year cycle or something where they um, pass laws, like they had a so-called affirmative action, they had housing rights, they had laws that were supposedly giving us rights that we're supposed to, that we supposedly are guaranteed in the constitution. And they keep taking them back and then giving them back to us. So yes, we feel like we're always at the same place. We're at the same place as we were in 72. Let's talk about identity, because that is also a discussion that's happening right now. Uh, We have the first black woman vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. She also happens to be the first South Asian woman. Uh, Kamala Harris is, uh, do you see her as having had her path paved by Shirley Chisholm, who, of course, spoke at the 1972 convention in Gary, Indiana? Yes, and and many other black women that went before her. Kamala was a DA in San Francisco, and I did not agree with some of the, you know, some of her decisions as a DA. But I do believe, and she was the Attorney General of California, the state. And then she was the Attorney General, and my son, my grandson, was murdered in 2011. So I was a part of activists who were going up to her office in in Sacramento demanding that she do something about the police killings of our people. And we were, you know, and and we were frustrated with what Kamala was doing at that time. But I believe that she is able to look at, oh, back then, you know, maybe I can change. I believe that she can change. I believe that she is a better person now from her experience than she was as a DA and as the Attorney General. Well, at the very least, there is a wider, broader, more louder national movement demanding justice for the victims of police abuse and killings than there was, uh, and and the stakes are higher, right? There are more eyes on her. Of course, as vice president, she wouldn't have the same power, say, as a U.S. attorney general would, but she does uh, have quite a bit of power to set the agenda, and many uh, wonder if she would essentially be a successor for uh, Biden if he were to win. Uh, Given his age, he's less likely to um, run for a second term. So there's the issue of identity, then there's the issue of politics. Right. So where does uh, what are the kinds of conversations that you hope will take place at the Black National Convention on August 28th that emphasize that it's not enough to have a person that looks like you or I uh, in the White House, but that actually puts forward our liberation and policies that further our liberation from the highest levels? Right. And the way that that happens is that we don't just sit down, vote, and then go home. We have to stay on our politicians. Once they are in office, we have to let them know what our community is thinking, what we will and will not accept. And we can't, we can't back down. To me, um, although the presidential election is important, but my local election is extremely important. Um, We have a DA right here in Alameda County where I live 
who is uh, who has never tried or uh, uh, prosecuted any policeman for killing a black a black person or a brown person, and that DA is a Democrat. So we need to deal with these issues locally, not just you know, not just nationally, not just the president, uh, but here in our, in my community the community I live in and the community that affects me directly. The Washington Post had a really interesting piece on Friday uh, headlined, Democrats embraced Black Lives Matter as a slogan, but does Biden have a plan to make it real? And of course, we saw um, family members of George Floyd being asked to speak at the convention. We saw political figures um, not just make nods to the Black Lives Matter movement, but to actually um, explicitly talk about the importance of justice for uh, black folks at the hands of police. But uh, again, as this Washington Post headline asks, does Joe Biden have a plan to make black lives matter? What do you think? I think that we, you know, this is why our convention is so important, that why the BREATHE Act is so important. These are things that we are going to demand from that administration. He may or may not. But if we don't say anything, if we act like we're perfectly satisfied with whatever agenda he puts out just to get rid of Trump, then um, he may not have an agenda. You know, he may not put us on his, um, uh, he may not have anything to offer us, you know, as far as what we need and for us to have relief from, um, from the police murders, from from the lack of health care, from the lack of housing, for us to have some kind of ability to live as, as human beings here in our own country, you know? And unfortunately, Joe Biden has um, put his foot in his mouth several times just in the last few months uh, when he talks about the black community. I mean, we recall what he said in an interview with a, a prominent um, a podcast host, radio host. Um, if you if you're a black person voting for Trump, then you're not really black. Uh, you know, and more recently he talked about uh, there not being as much diversity in the black community as there is in the Latino community. He has put his foot in his mouth a few times when it comes to the black community. Are you um, weary of what may happen during the debates on this? As he now, unfortunately, is the opposition to the most white supremacist president in modern American times. And 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 Trump should have never got in office because if Trump had a bit, I'm sure, and I just want to say this, that when Obama came through, that they looked at everything in his life. They talked about him smoking marijuana when he was in college. They talked about everything that that they could about Obama. And how did Trump skate through with all of this, all of the criminal activities and stuff he's being accused of? How did he skate through? And we know that Obama with that record would never have gotten through and and been cleared to even run for president, let alone be president. But um, Joe, as far as Joe Biden is concerned, he's a, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania, he's from Pennsylvania. You know, um, 
he was talking about the diversity in the community. I'm, I'm Afro-Indigenous. My people are, I'm African-American because, you know, that's what they put me under. But I'm also Native American and I'm a member of a Native American tribe. So we are extremely diverse. We are a diverse, uh, you know, we have diverse interests. We have people who are very well educated, who have, uh, who have money. We have people who are working class. We have people who are lower income. So we are a diverse group of people, but the common interest, the common denominator is that we are always at some point having to face the racism that this system was built on, which is um, the racism against us as African people, the racism against indigenous people, Native Americans, and the racism against anybody who is, who is not on that top tier, which is a, a white male. So we live in a white male patriarchal system. <laughs> so the uh, GOP, especially under Trump, has claimed that they have done more for black Americans than any other president, right? In recent history, this is what Trump claims. And then you have the Democratic Party, which year after year, election after election, tends to take uh, black voters for granted. Is the August 28th Black National Convention meant to put the Democratic Party on notice or the Republican Party on notice or both? Probably both. Because if you're not if you're not for us, then why are you asking us to come out and support you? Because if it's not, I mean, it's the same. Like with George Floyd getting killed, what they told us is even if we're good, even if we're um, where we're supposed to be, and even if we do what you say, we could get killed. So you have told us that our life under your system is not worth anything and can be taken at the blink of an eye. So you are, so we're at which end? That's why the young people are out there marching and protesting. I believe that um, because of the way that we have been treated as a people and that we're up against it, that we're not, we're not saying the Democrats are right and the Republicans are wrong. You know, in the first place, Trump shouldn't have even been president. He should have never uh, made it as far as he has, and he would not have made it as far as he has had he not been a white male. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. And then the DNC wants to humor him. You know, oh, he's the president. Oh, we have to respect him. But he doesn't have to respect us. And the DNC, some of them don't even respect us as a black people. So the uh, the agenda for the Black National Convention, you mentioned earlier, part of it was to push for the passage of the Breathe Act. Uh, there's also the ongoing issue of mass incarceration that disproportionately impacts the black community. Um, what are the kinds of things that you want people to walk away from at the Black National Convention that you hope they will use as tools to hold any future administration accountable? Because of course, uh, President, you know, we just mentioned Obama, um, he went, you know, he, some of the some of the most important things that Obama did were in response to grassroots pressure from below. And a future Biden presidency may have to have the same sort of a dynamic, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a son 
my youngest son, who is in prison, has been in prison for 19 years for a crime he did not commit. So that is very personal to me. And what I found out going through trial with him was that we had no rights. They, they have the right to lie, to, um, to uh, say whatever they wanted to say, and we did not have the right to defend ourselves in that court. And here in Alameda County, which is where Huey Newton was on trial, the same courthouse, they lynched my son. They basically lynched him and he's in prison. He was sentenced to 66 years to life oh for something goodness. he did not even do. I'm so sorry. And that is really what set me off into being an activist. And I, and I met with other people who's whose black children are going through the same thing. And over the 19 years, they're doing it to black women, taking women away from their children and putting the children in foster care. And they don't have to, they don't have to do it. And I, and, and so that, so to me, that whole thing about um, the prison system, which I wasn't really paying attention to until my son was, you know, was wrongfully convicted. I really wasn't focusing on that. Although we know, we knew that it was not, it was not fair. We knew that, but we didn't notice that some of the black judges, the more progressive judges they have put on, you know, that um, had come in were gone. And there's more conservative judges. So we fought for, we've been fighting here for, um, to change the laws regarding, regarding the, the, the Police Accountability Act, regarding um, the sentencing, and it's just been chipping away and chipping away. And um, to reverse, you know, to reverse what this system is doing now, this is another way of erasing us as a people, you know, to take away and, and um, to take um, our young people, put them in prison. Some of them are, you know, they have women prisons here, CIW, they have New Folsom, all kind. you know, the prison system is taking away most of the budget from our taxes. The budget that does not come back to us, to our communities, does not benefit us, you know? And um, so I, um, so yes, I'm, that's part, that's on our, um, part of our Breathe Act. Part of our Breathe Act has to do with getting rid of this unjust prison system that we have. And unfortunately, Democrats have been uh, as culpable as Republicans on the issue, the, you know, using the so-called tough on crime approach. Joe Biden, of course, being one of the uh, main authors of the um, criminal uh, justice reform that led to a massive explosion of the prison population. So it's not just a matter of putting people from one party in power. It's a matter of holding them accountable. Well, Anita, blacknovember.org is yes. the place where people can find out more about the Black National Convention. Yes. Yes. We'll put a link to that from our website uh, as well. Good luck to you with the convention and thanks so much for joining us. 
And thank you. It was wonderful. My guest has been Anita Wills. She's a member of the Electoral Justice Project Roundtable with the Movement for Black Lives. MB, the Movement for Black Lives has been uh, organizing the Black National Convention, which is due to take place on the evening of August 28th. You can find out more on RSVP at blacknovember.org. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sonali. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. It has been only about a decade that same sex marriage in the U.S. has been something we've been able to take for granted. Even though LGBTQ Americans are legally and openly able to, say, serve in the U.S. military, there are constant attacks from the right against the modest measures of equality that the community has achieved. Worldwide, the situation is similar, where swift progress on equal rights has gone hand in hand with a harsh backlash. My next guest describes this divide as a pink line, which he says is, quote, a human rights frontier that divided and described the world in an entirely new way in the first two decades of the 21st century. Mark Gevisser is author of A Legacy of Liberation, Thabo Mbeki and the Future of the South African Dream, Lost and Found in Johannesburg, a memoir and portraits of power profiles in a changing South Africa. He's also the co-editor of the path-breaking anthology Defiant Desire, Gay and Lesbian Lives in South Africa. His journalism and commentary have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Granta, The Wall Street Journal, and other publications. He now joins me from Cape Town to discuss his new book called The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers. Welcome to the program, Mark. Thank you for having me, Sonali. So first, um, how much progress have we seen in equal rights for LGBTQ people around the world in a way that you can compare to struggles uh, of other communities for rights? Has it been sort of faster than other movements? Sonali, Barack Obama said uh, when when he came out as a supporter of marriage equality in the United States that no social movement has moved such as that for, he was speaking about gay, gay rights. And I think he's right. I think that something quite extraordinary has happened in the last two decades globally, in, 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 that, in that something that was previously not spoken about um, in many, many parts of the world has become a topic for conversation. 
has become a somewhat explosive topic for conversation. And and as a consequence, uh, partly because of the power of the digital revolution, because of of mass migration, because of the way people move so quickly, um, a, a notion about LGBTQ equality has really caught fire very quickly globally. Um, as people have been able to go online and 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 find community, find ideas, find solidarity online, and have then sort of worked to download these ideas into their local environments with with very mixed results. But 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 yes, I mean, if you look at how many countries in such a short space of time have um, moved to make uh, same-sex marriage legal now at how already there are about 10 countries in the world who have granted transgender people the right to self-determination which means the right to choose for themselves what their gender is without having to undergo any kind of external certification I mean, such things were unimaginable um, a generation ago when when I was coming out in the 1980s or the even the early 1990s and we uh, of course have to remind ourselves that the flip side of it is that lives were at stake lives were on the line rights were violated um, lives were lost right the price that movements have paid for equality uh, and equality that's not of course even fully granted uh, but that there's been progress on has been quite high right you, you use the word backlash and it's entirely the appropriate word it, what's happened is is that it, as I said a, a, a a somewhat explosive global conversation has been ignited. And and um, issues that weren't previously discussed are now in the open. And inevitably, this has caused fear, this has caused panic, and this has caused backlash. So, for example, the first story I write about in my book is the story of a, a, a couple who held a public engagement ceremony in the Central African country of Malawi. And this became sort of front page news, gays engaged. And the next thing, the police swooped in and arrested these two and sentenced them. And, and they were sentenced in the Malawian High Court to 14 years hard labor for carnal knowledge against the order of nature. Now, what's very significant about this case is that until they came out and declared their love publicly for each other, this law was never used against two consenting adults. So suddenly there's a there's a sort of foment in society as a new group of people claim rights. A new group of people take to the streets, often it's cool to take to the streets where there's, where there's a clampdown on any sort of civic action. So in countries like Russia or, or Uganda, LGBTQ um, communities and movements at the forefront of claiming rights among minorities. And, and and what would happen in these countries, particularly in Russia, in China to, 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 to a lesser extent, the authorities clamped down on these LGBT uh, communities claiming the rights as a way of showing the broader population that, that such claim for rights was really not tolerable in their authoritarian societies. Because we're here in the United States, um, for I know for my audience, it's a very important issue about how con Christian conservative fundamentalists from the United States in particular have played in an outsized role in the backlash against LGBTQ rights, particularly on the African continent. Can you expand on that? And I know you write about that in your book. This is, this is a very important issue, and I write about it at length in my book. So it is absolutely true 
stripped for a kind of right-wing political homophobia was by the moral majority, uh, by, by people in the United States, uh, back to Anita Bryant, specifically to kind of wage a culture wars a, a, against a sort of secular, quote-unquote, permissive society. Now, what happened in the United States? You, you look at the um, opinion polls at the time, at around the time that Barack Obama decided to support same-sex marriage, and, and there's just an extraordinary shift in American society where this suddenly became a, a non-issue. Um, the battle was lost, the cult battle around gay people was lost in the United States. This had two consequences. In the United States, and we can talk about this a little bit later, culture wars began to be waged over transgender rights. But meanwhile, right-wing evangelists needed new um, fields to till. And it so happened that this was happening at the same time as a generation of African leaders, political and clerical, were, were looking for ways of gaining power and uh, not only in their own countries, but in the global church community. So this began in the Episcopalian Anglican Church, where Africans were able to use the issue of ordination of gay priests as, and, and their opposition to it as a way of becoming a serious global force within the Anglican movement. Now, why is it important to tell the story that way? Uh, this is why I think it's important, is because I, I think while it is correct that right-wing Americans have exported homophobia to Africa, or have exported a certain kind of political homophobia to Africa, that doesn't mean that Africans aren't homophobic themselves and that they don't have their own ideas. And one of the things I write in my book is that to say that homophobia is an American export it sort of denies African agency in the same way as to say homosexuality is an African export. We Africans, no matter what the color of our skin, I happen to be a white African, but white or black, we Africans, like all global citizens in this digital age, you know, take the ideas that work for us, download them, and indigenize them. But yes, you're absolutely right, particularly in Uganda, a, a certain script for how to gain to grow power politically by using homophobia uh, played off uh, an American evangelical right-wing playbook. Tell me about the frontiers uh, that you explore in your book because they're quite geographically diverse. Of course, South Africa, because that's where you are, and then other uh, nations uh, in Africa. And then you even go to uh, Russia, Mexico, Israel. I do. Um, it's, uh, so and India. And India, yes, your your uh, your final chapter. So, um, what were some of the similarities that you found in the struggles, in the progress, and the backlash? I mean, maybe that's too wide a question. So, let me first start with asking you: Where were the places you explored, and why did you choose those places to go to? You know, I go everywhere, but I I, <laughs> I I absolutely wanted to understand the way it was a global LGBT rights or LGBTQ rights and what effect this movement was having in different parts of the world. So I chose places where, where, where I felt a, a, a pink line was being staked very clearly around LGBTQ rights in one way or another, where because of the way um, people were defending these rights or attacking these rights, queer people themselves, queer people themselves were sort of finding themselves on the frontier. And, and I can, and in that way, I, I write about South Africa and particularly the story of that Malawian transgender woman, it turns out, who was arrested once she was pardoned, she came to South Africa. I go to East Africa, to Uganda, because um, 
there was such a, a powerful political homophobia in Uganda. I go to Egypt because I was fascinated in the way the Arab Spring created space uh, for queer people, the way queer people came out on Tahrir Square in, in, in the Arab Spring, how, how, they, how they claimed public space in Cairo, and then how that space was shut down when, when General al-Sisi held his coup d'etat and wanted to assert a certain kind of strongman identity show Egyptians that um, that the chaos of the Arab Spring was over. The way he did it was by clamping down on queer people. So Egypt is really interesting to me for that reason. I sort of crossed the Sinai from Egypt into Israel and Palestine because I'm fascinated then, and I think your Pacific listeners will be really interested in this, in the way in, in Egypt, in Israel and Palestine, a pink line is traced over the green line, which separates Palestine and Israel. So on the one side of that line, you have a country, Israel, which supports gay rights as a way of saying, look how different we are from those horrible Arab people who are so repressive. And Israel is in fact accused by its critics, including myself, of pinkwashing its human rights record with regard to Palestinians by promoting gay rights. So that's what happens on one side of, of the pink line, green line in, in Israel. On the other side, you have Palestinians who come to see LGBT rights as an Israeli weapon being used against them. So you can imagine how, hmm. how Palestinian politicians and freedom fighters feel about LGBTQ rights, given that. Now, my question in Israel and Palestine, as everywhere, is what does this mean for queer Palestinians? And in Israel and Palestine, I tell the story of two couples, uh, one in Ramallah and one in Tel Aviv, who are, who are mixed. One is Jewish and one is Palestinian. So from there, I go elsewhere. I go to Russia because um, there the pink line is, is traced so firmly over the old lines of the, um, of the Iron Curtain, if you want. And on the one side, uh, you've, got, you've got Europe saying, we are promoting equality for all people. And, and in a way, this is what makes us civilized. Um, and on the other side, you've got Vladimir Putin, or you've got Viktor Orban now, or Andrei Duda in Poland, who are saying, what makes us different from Europe is that we don't tolerate this kind of perversion. And um, we need to put up a barrier against these decadent, secular, neo-colonial ideas coming from the West. And they use queer people to do that. So, so, so the way a pink line is drawn in Russia is really interesting to me. And I tell a very tragic story there of a transgender woman who lost custody of her son because a court found that just by being a parent, she was promoting gay propaganda to the son and promoting gay propaganda to minors in Russia is illegal. So I could go on, but those are some of the places. Wow. So it seems as though uh, the uh, one of the common themes that you see is that some of these right-wing authoritarian leaders whom you mentioned, and I would of course put our own President Donald Trump here in the US in that category, have used um, gay rights, LGBTQ rights and demands for human rights as a wedge issue, as an effective wedge issue to say that this is what characterizes the radical liberal left, etc. And, you know, here on the right uh, of the right side of the spectrum, we have the 
uh, traditional conservative nuclear family, um, etc. And 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 then you have LGBTQ communities becoming a very serious target. In particular, within that, you have transgender people being singled out with some of the harshest targeting. Right? We've seen that here in the U.S. with the fight over, um, you know, who, who can use public mm. restrooms, mm. but even more. And uh, do you see transgender people being on the front lines mm. in other countries mm. as well? Uh, yes, um, in, in different ways. Um, I expl- I've given the example of how in Russia, a transgender woman um, was um, was found uh, to be against the anti-gay propaganda law. Now, now what's happening in Eastern Europe is... is, is 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 mapping a little bit what's what's already happened in the United States mm-hmm. is is the way that once um once gay people have become somewhat more normalized normativized once once people come to know uh, that they have gay or lesbian neighbors friends colleagues there needs to be a new demon and and the new demon is increasingly becoming uh, transgender people you're seeing that in in Eastern Europe, and and something called gender ideology, and this is a notion that was um, that was really um, developed in the Catholic Church. In fact, by the previous Pope um, Benedict, when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger, this idea that the greatest threat to um, traditional values is an ideology called gender, an ideology that says that we are not destined to be. Um, uh, in, that we're not destined to have the, the genders or the sexes that we're born with, but that um, that gender is a construct. And and this is even Pope Francis, the, the supposedly liberal Pope Francis, has railed against this. Uh, Brussels philanthropic organizations are teaching children that boys can become girls and girls can, can become boys. And and gender ideology has become a very powerful tool in the hands of, of, of the, the right-wing populists you mentioned because it affects children. And, and, and the populists are realizing that, that this is the way to go. It used to be gay for children because gay people are pedophiles, you don't want them teaching you. That was the Anita Bryant thing. That was Proposition 28, uh, Maggie Thatcher's uh, law in, in the UK. Now that that can't be mobilized in the same way, because everybody knows somebody who's gay, um, there's a new mobilization ideology, um, which is, I think, something to be begun. It's all over Latin America. It's a big big movement in Latin America, deployed a lot by Jair Bolsonaro in who is, let's say, that you cannot teach about gender in primary schools. And people's government, uh, a point to the government from the Catholic right wing, who are really pushing uh, the battle against gender ideology very hard, and who are at the forefront of the rollback against transgender rights that you're seeing in the US, even as the Supreme Court, of course, rules in that amazing Amy Smith that transgender people are protected from discrimination in the workplace. Uh, Trump's government believes that transgender people are not protected from discrimination when it comes to healthcare. What about the places where transgender people have made great achievements for equality, for recognition? Let's focus on that because your your book, of course, is not just about the backlash, but the incredible progress and the fast pace of it. No, sure, sure. And 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 here's where we come to India. Right. And 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 one of the things that just absolutely fascinates me is that. Uh, is is what this notion of transgender rights 
which is a, a, a notion about political rights from Western society. It's because when that, that, that notion comes into contact with societies, with places in the world where there are age-old third gender categories, such as, such as South Asia, where you have Hijras, where you have Metis, uh, such as Southeast Asia, where you have people called Babailan or, 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 or Bakla. And what's been really interesting to me about India, and this is my final chapter, is, is I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of people called Hijra in, in India, as you know. So and let me spell that out, Hijra, which for our non-Indian audience, H-I-J-R-A would be the spelling of it, right? Absolutely. It's very much a part of Indian culture. And, and Hijras are, are, are third gender people who have always been part of Indian society and have always had a place in it, but it's a somewhat abject place, let's be frank about it. Right. Um, Hijras are sort of cast out, uh, effeminate boys are cast out of their home communities, or they flee their home communities, often because they're fleeing arranged marriage, and they join this alternate cult of Hijras, which is which where they find protection and safety, and where they can work as beggars or as sex workers, but which are also very feudal places, and where there's a lot of a lot of violence and brutality. And what's been really interesting in India is the way the Hijra community has embraced the transgender rights notion, has, has, has taken on the notion of transgender rights. And in fact, there's a really important um, uh, 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 Supreme Court judgment giving um, Indian transgender people the right to self-determination and giving them the rights to, to benefits, to social benefits, to, to housing, to job benefits, to the kind of benefits that, that other backward castes such as Dalits get. Um, now, now it, it, it's, a, it's a moot point as to whether uh, this progress has actually been translated into policy, but there it is. So in Pakistan, you know, really a place not, not renowned democratic values, um, transgender people have full rights to self-determination. It's fascinating. In other parts of the world uh, where there aren't Necessarily, of third gender, such as Argentina. Argentina was the very country in the world to give transgender people full rights to self-determination, and an absolute um, torchbearer of, of of transgender rights in the world. Uh, what's absolute? What's been absolutely fascinating for me, Sonali, as I as I've tracked the sort of passage of the pink line globally, is how uh, is how the way the world is divided. Is not necessarily the way you would you would think it is when it comes to human rights of the West versus the rest. That 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 at the same time as in a place like the United States, uh, the rights of transgender people are being rolled back. Um, the rights of later in places like India um, or Argentina. So finally, where do you think the future lies? I mean, and and also, do you feel that? the attacks on the LGBTQ community are even raised in a strong enough manner when movements fight back against these conservative authoritarian leaders. I mean, it's one thing for the community to fight for its rights. It's another thing for, you know, all people who believe in progress, who believe in equality, who believe in human rights to include the attacks on LGBTQ folks in their struggle against authoritarianism. You know, there's a, there's a terrible vicious cycle that unfortunately has been activated uh, in, in pink line politics over the last two decades. And this cycle is 
whenever people um, like us in the so-called West support LGBTQ rights in a place like Russia or in a place like Egypt, then it's just so easy for the other side to say, you see, this is a Western thing. These are Western values and, and the West is trying to invade our, our society and contaminate with its decadent ideas. And the only way of kind of stopping that vicious cycle, I think, is um, for indigenous movement in favor of the rights of all people to grow within these societies. And, and in a way, I think India is a, a very interesting object lesson in this, because, because what happened in India was that um, the movement to decriminalize homosexuality in India, which was a very powerful movement in the early years of the century and was ultimately successful after a long battle, um, worked in two ways. On the one hand, it's sort of part of the global village. This is an India rising moment. We are modern. We are, we are part of the world. We are part of the global village. This is why we embrace this. But they also said, we have certain values and traditions and histories as Indian people. We can go back and look at our Vedic texts, uh, which are all about tolerance. We can go back and look at the iconography on our temple walls, which have amazing examples of gender fluidity. We can look at the writings of our Ambedkar and our Nehru, and how they spoke about um, the importance of people, everybody having rights. And the other thing the Indian movement did is, is using these strategies, the Indian movement developed really powerful allies, parents, um, religious leaders, um, people in business, Bollywood. And all of these movements sort of supported the rights of LGBTQ people in India, and it had it made a huge difference. And if that kind of if that kind of movement could happen in other parts of the world, it, it would make a difference as well. It, it's way harder in places where there's this really, um, really viciously homophobic Christianity or Islam. Um, it's it's way harder in places uh, like Russia where there's such a powerful politics around defining yourself against the West. But, but the solution is for these, for these movements, not to, not to pretend that they have nothing to do with the rest of the world because we're all global citizens, but um, to find local roots and, and, and local traditions, local histories, uh, and to build themselves out of those. And, and those local traditions and local histories are in every society. I can talk about how in South Africa, there's long been a tradition of, um, of traditional healers, uh, being transgender or gender non-conforming because somebody in a male body who behaves in a female way might be perceived to be inhabited by a female ancestor. In, in, in the Yoruba tradition of Nigeria, there are amazing gender fluid deities. Um, these, these are very powerful places to start. Well, I want to thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today and giving us uh, such a, a wonderful uh, analysis of what's happening globally around this issue. Best of luck to you with your book. So much, Sinali. My guest has been Mark Gavisar, author of numerous books, including his latest that we've just been discussing, called The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers. I'm Sonali Kolhatka. We're online at risingupatsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kolhatka. 
Anna Buss is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RUWithSonali. That's the letters RUWithSonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RUWithSonali. Our website is RisingUpWithSonali.com, where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. Portland on 90.7 FM in the Portland area and all over the world at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Clinton Street Theater's virtual screening of Jazz on a Summer's Day.